Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? The plans to reopen the country are close to being finalized. And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more, and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So I'm delighted to be joined by Kevin Rudd, who is, of course, former Prime Minister of Australia, a great expert on global politics and Asia in particular, And I think, Kevin, you've just taken on a new role with the IMF. The IMF have asked me and a small gaggle of others to become members of an international advisory panel working directly to the managing director. So, yeah, we've been doing that. We met for the first time during the course of the last week. So, Kevin, before we get into this conversation, which I am sure is going to be fascinating, how is the pandemic affecting you personally? Where are you and how are you coping? Both myself and Therese, my wife, and the family are uh, coping just fine. I'm normally based in New York where I run a think tank called the Asia Policy Institute. I've been doing that for the last five years, more or less since I left office as Prime Minister. But after I managed to secure agreement with the institution to allow all of our staff to work from home and to get off the subway in New York, Therese uh, correctly said, you should get yourself back to Oz. So about a month or so ago, I came back. And uh, we've been up on Queensland's Sunshine Coast since then, very close to, in fact, the farm where I was born and grew up half a lifetime ago. I was just recalling before this conversation, Kevin, sitting, I think, in the kind of conservatory of your house in Brisbane and us talking about your political ambitions when you just become an MP, I think. And I, the other thing I remember is I think a possum landed on the kind of corrugated roof of the conservatory and I didn't know what it was and you were very amused. Oh, that's true. We do that for all visiting ponds, actually. We have wildlife <laughs> drop from the heavens onto the roof and we just say that's just normal. So you probably, though, in that house, we always had huntsmen spiders paying us visits as well. So we've had many terrorised, both British and European guests, but the place has barely become more civilised since then. So we're still on the frontier out here. So, Kevin, let me ask you the question we're asking everybody on this podcast. Kevin Rod, how do you think the world could and how do you think the world should change after this pandemic? Well, it's important you ask it in that sequence. Let's go to descriptive realities before we seek to be normative. I think the first thing which could well happen if Trump is re-elected 
and if we see a continuation of Chinese nationalist approaches to their posture in the region and the world, is that we're going to find ourselves in an increasingly hostile and confrontational relationship between Washington and Beijing. And as a result of that, we're going to find ourselves increasingly drawn into a polarizing, bifurcating world. And if we think that, for example, the debates over 5G, which dominated a lot of the landscape in 2019, was significant, that will simply be a mild precursor of the binary world that begins to emerge. And so that is what I think could well happen. Another consequence of that happening is an increased immobilization of the existing machinery of global governance, not just through institutions like the G20, but the United Nations system and all of its sub-entities, the Bretton Woods institutions, and frankly, the complex fabric of global governance we've evolved since the San Francisco Conference and Bretton Woods in 44-45. And as geopolitics intrudes into each of those institutions, take the WHO as the most recent candidate, the World Health Organization, so it will increasingly happen with all the institutions, rendering them increasingly paralyzed as far as their effective multilateral functioning is concerned. So what should happen? I think this pandemic should be seen both in Washington and Beijing as a huge shot across the bows from nature, parallel to the massive shot across the bows that we have had from climate change over the last several decades. And that what should happen is that global great powers recognize that these challenges are in fact of a greater order of magnitude than simply conducting 19th century or even 20th century geopolitics as business as usual. And that what should happen as a result is that machinery such as the G20 and the pre-existing machinery of the United Nations through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change plus the World Health Organization, augmented by unleashed new energies through the UN Security Council, should be further empowered to do their global governance job. That's what should happen. On the probabilities of between coulds and shoulds, I'm probably in about the 7 out of 10 could category, that is the negative scenario outlined before, and about the 3 out of 10 should category in terms of uh, what, in fact, uh, could come about if the better angels of our nature emerge triumphant over base nationalism and protectionism. So, of course, that leads to the question, which is what are the factors that will determine whether or not it's the 30% scenario or the 70% scenario. And of course, here, Kevin, one recalls 2008 and the way in which the global community, G7, G20, responded to that. Now, you, I think, with Gordon Brown, with Nicolas Sarkozy, were the kind of critical figures in pulling together a global response and ensuring that there was a global response. One of the characteristics of this moment is the absence of global leadership, isn't it? So, first of all, I'm interested in the contrast between now and the actions that you took with other leaders in 2007, 2008, and also where on earth global leadership might come from now. Back then, we had 
in response to the global financial crisis after a huge amount of internal politics amongst the major economies around the world under George Bush's leadership finally resolved to turn the G20 into the global machinery to respond to the financial crisis. You see, that financial crisis was of a massive order of magnitude. It's often assumed that the current crisis is much worse. It may well turn out to be. But looking into a glass dimly a decade or so ago after the Lehman's collapse, many of us genuinely feared that we were looking at systemic financial implosion of a type we hadn't seen since the Great Depression. And then, consequentially, an unfolding general economic implosion as well with mass unemployment. So to give due to George Bush, despite his monumental foul-ups over Iraq, he actually seized the moment and brought people together in Washington just before the end of his presidency in his own lame duck period. But it was actually a combination of Gordon Brown and Merkel, then a relatively new Chancellor of Germany. And to be fair to the new administration under Barack Obama, his team as well, together with the Chinese under Hu Jintao and his Sherpas and ourselves in Australia, I think it was really that group of five who crafted the policy response that we saw agreed to in the London conference of the G20 in March-April of 2009. And that is what, frankly, turned the corner in that crisis and markets ceased to be spiralling downwards and we saw the trajectory for recovery. Now, what's different on this occasion is that China and the United States, as opposed to being round a common table, have been at daggers drawn with each other. The pre-existing geopolitical fights which have emerged in the period since about 2017, compounded by the trade war of 18 and 19, left this relationship in a very raw and fragile state by the time coronavirus erupted beyond China's borders in February, March. So that is the core problem here. The essential geopolitics of that relationship has come asunder as both of these powers have now found themselves in almost an atavistic struggle to see who will be the anchoring power for the next global order. That, I think, has been the key factor at work here. What could change to go to the third part of your question. Frankly, it will require a Democrat win in the presidential election in November under Biden to hold open a different prospect. It is not that the Democrats or Biden are holding open an olive branch to Beijing at present. They are not. And domestically, it's politically untenable for them to do so. But the instincts of the team, both in foreign security policy that Joe Biden will assemble around him, is one which will seek to be, in my judgment, hard line in the bilateral relationship with Beijing, but with one big caveat, carving out spaces in the areas of global financial management through the IMF and the Financial Stability Board, carving out climate change collaboration and carving out global pandemic management as three areas which still constitute global public goods where both sides should still collaborate, while the geopolitical contest between the two countries continues in other domains. Uh, That, I think, is the one factor which looms as a possibility, though not a probability, for the future of global governance. There has been some conversation about 
China and how China will want to present itself. So obviously, there's a great kind of ambiguity about China's position in this crisis in the sense that some people, and obviously Donald Trump's been wanting to push this, want to kind of blame the whole crisis on China and even kind of quasi-conspiratorial elements to that. On the other hand, we're seeing China now wanting to talk a lot about its humanitarian aid, its medical supplies it's sending around the world, that it's trying to kind of reposition itself. When we get into the kind of post-pandemic period, the kind of economic situation that is going to be happening, I would imagine Donald Trump will simply want to throw more and more money at this. So we have kind of enormous levels of debt, American debt, some of that held by China. So there are kind of views about how China will use the position that it's going to be in, and, and some people wondering whether China will want to assert itself now as a genuine kind of multilateral leader of a new global order. Do you think that's pie in the sky? Uh, Yes, I do think it's pie in the sky. And I say that not as some sort of latent admirer of President Trump's administration. I'm simply looking at the unfolding dynamics as they relate to both these great powers through the fog of war, which we now find ourselves in in the midst of this coronavirus crisis. And so the bottom line is, as I see it at this stage, is that both China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. The POP commentariat in January and February tended to assume, particularly amongst the conservatives and neoconservatives around the world, that at last China had been delivered its geopolitical comeuppance through the internal failures of an authoritarian system to provide transparent and early notification of the virus's outbreak, faltering steps in the initial public health response, as well as the economic carnage writ large across the Chinese economy. And then we had almost in the next breath the conclusion by much the same commentariat that those clever communists in China, through changing the narrative and on top of that through being able to deliver their coronavirus aid around the world, were in fact going to re-engineer the outcome in China's geopolitical advantage. My overall conclusion, uh, Matthew, is that both, as I said before, these powers are going to emerge significantly damaged. A friend and colleague of mine in the United States, uh, Ian Bremer, wrote some time ago about not a G2 but a G0 being a possibility in terms of the future course of global governance with weakened global institutions and a rolling Mexican standoff between these two global powers, each equally unwilling or unable to assume the fundamental underpinning provision of global public goods necessary for the future. So at present, I see that as a more credible outcome than either a Trump administration geopolitical victory or a Xi Jinping administration geopolitical victory with either capable then of refashioning the world in their own image. So what does that mean for the rest of us, Kevin? And let me put it more convividly, if you were Prime Minister of Australia now, what would you be trying to do in relation to other countries, you know, in the UK and Germany or whatever, in the absence of leadership in this Mexican standoff, as you described it, what might be possible outside this toxic twosome? It's on this question that I've, in fact, written a piece in The Economist in the last couple of days, looking at this as a probable scenario, that is a wounded America under Trump, but also a wounded China 
under Xi Jinping? And where does that leave the rest of the world? What I argue for in the piece I've just written, The Economist, is that it's no longer possible but now essential for other significant global powers to coalesce around the core preservation of the central institutions of global governance, at least for the interim term until geopolitical equilibrium is eventually re-established. So what do I mean by that in practice? When you look at countries like Germany, like France, even Brussels, despite the critique of its internal handling of the COVID-19 crisis within Europe and particularly in relation to Italy. But beyond those three Europeans, Japan, Canada, and even, depending on what Boris decides to do with Britain, whether it's to be a genuine global Britain as opposed to some minor appendage of a Trumpian brave new world, If it's to be a genuinely global Britain, then Britain as a similar constructive power. And then beyond, frankly, those G20 countries, other global order promoting powers like Singapore, collectively harnessing their intellectual, budgetary and policy capabilities to sustain the essential institutions of global governance, by which I mean, obviously, right now, the WHO, World Health Organization, which is under fundamental attack, prospectively, the World Food Program and the Food and Agricultural Organization, given the likely disruption to global supply chains, including food production as well, through to UNHCR for refugees, because we still do not have clarity on the likely impact of all this on global people movements, And then through again, I would say, to climate change and through again, I would say, probably to the essential operations of the IMF and the World Bank. Now, this is what I describe as kind of a multilateral triage exercise by what I've called uh, in the Economist article, the M7, the multilateral seven or the magnificent seven, if you like, to preserve this essential machinery until we have the re-establishment of one form or another of geopolitical equilibrium. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. And the big caveat here, Matthew, is what then happens with the US presidential elections come the end of this year. One of the things that the RSA says about change and crisis is that crisis leads to change when three conditions apply. When there is a prior demand and capacity for change before the crisis, when the crisis in some senses reinforces that demand and prefigures different practices in a post-crisis world, and then when at the end of the crisis there is a sufficient political alliance and there are the practical policy ideas and innovations ready to take advantage of the kind of wider Overton window which exists after a crisis. Now, putting all of that together and thinking of the global dimension of this, the kind of one thing which pre-existed the crisis, the one vehicle where there is capacity, where there is support, is around the sustainable development goals. Is it completely ridiculous to believe that we might emerge from this crisis, possibly with the support of the M7, as you put it, with a a commitment to move the sustainable development goals from being a fine set of aspirations to actually being an action plan, which might be delivered? Am I crazy even to think of that? No, you're not, because I'm by instinct and by political profession a progressive. And for those reasons, I believe that the human condition is capable of improvement, both in terms of material well-being of peoples around the world, 
together with their security, uh, together with planetary sustainability. And if we didn't believe that these things were capable of improvement, then we should all just pack up and go home. Mind you, conservatives around the world tend to do that anyway. So therefore, I do not regard this as an irrational set of propositions. The second thing to say is that the arc of human history has been bent in these directions for a long, long time, for the better part of a century, but it has not been a smooth trajectory. It's often been interrupted by one crisis or another, and we should take some comfort from some of those historical trajectories. Uh, thirdly, however, being an Antipodean pragmatist and a bloke who grew up on a farm in rural Queensland, I'm always interested in this proposition, which is I'm attracted to the elegance of ideas, but I'm equally driven by the political praxis about how we translate those into things that actually work for our nations, our national governments, as well as our global governance. So of your three elements of RSA, precursors for sustainable progressive change, the one I focus on most is, in fact, the third, which is the political machinery for sustaining it. Uh, let me just elaborate on that for one moment. You see, when we came together in 44-45 to construct the post-world order under the United States leadership, it was anchored in a view that unilateral national decisions are invariably going to land us in a collective bucket of poo, because that's what had happened with the two great shebangs before then. First and the Second World War, not to mention the Great Depression up the middle. And so it wasn't through a fit of irrational idealism, but instead a view in 44 45 that our individual national interests would be augmented and in fact consolidated by defined areas of international, indeed, what became global collaboration. And that's why we fashioned these institutions. Uh, look at the UN Charter, it's a well crafted document, not just redolent with idealism redolent of the realities from which we had just come. So therefore, constructing again the underpinning politics of sustaining those ideals and the institutions which give them effect is now not an optional extra for what I describe as constructive powers, like France, Germany, Britain on a good day, Brussels usually, Japan, yes, Canada, yes, in a normal season, Australia, but a big question mark at the moment as they've turned inwards, and even the Sings in Southeast Asia. But unless the politics of that is done with a core group dedicated to providing the political and economic and financial and policy critical mass and grunt, then, Matthew, it will remain a set of uh, noble aspirations for late-night television shows on whichever BBC program is your choice. And that's why I make this direct call now through your program, but earlier through The Economist, for this core group uh, to not just survive the central institutions of global governance now, but also having a condition about it which actually fundamentally reforms them to make them more effective. And with a wing and a prayer, if the Democrats win in the United States under a Biden presidency, a rebirth of what I describe as a new form of Rooseveltian pragmatic internationalism of the type which seemed impossible in 1932, but frankly, through the events of the war and then the post-war order, permeated the way in which international governance evolved in the decades after then, so too must that happen again, even from a, an unlikely presidential candidate like Joe Biden.
Sadly, Kevin, we've nearly run out of time. So just two last questions. The first is another reference to 2008. In 2008, it was the behaviour of business and particularly the financial sector that led in many ways to the crisis. Now I sense that it actually might be business interest, including finance, who could play a much more benign role because the whole agenda around environmental and social responsibility and awareness of the challenges of climate change, there seems to have been a real shift in kind of corporate consciousness and corporate commitment to want to solve these problems. Indeed, I often find that business leaders are more capable of thinking long-term and talking long-term than politicians. Do you think that big business, and particular big finance, could play a role in encouraging the kind of vision that you're arguing for? Yes, they can, and they must. Otherwise, the singular actions of what I describe as the M7, core constructive governments, will only get so far. But if you then harness global business through all of our national peak industry bodies and even the international bodies like the International Chamber of Commerce as agents for sustainable change, then suddenly you start to have real power turning great ideas into realities. There's a further point just to add, Matthew, about big finance and to some extent big business. They all had a near-death experience in 08-09. I mean, I used to work very closely with most of them, frankly, when I was in office. And they know, even though they may not choose to admit it in their annual reports, how close they came to collective death in the absence of coordinated global action and cooperation by states. Now, I think a number of them have carried that wisdom forward, which is why we have seen in the intervening decade, bit by bit, coalitions of global action emerging around not just climate change, but more broadly, the sustainable development goals as well in the 2015 agreement coming out of New York. Uh, But this will require leadership, business leadership to have guts. My experience is that businesses like to operate behind the scenes. Uh, They really like to be in the first wave going over the top when the sergeant major blows the whistle. But guess what? The sort of order that you and I are now talking about, which has a strong progressive heart, reinforced by effective institutions empowered by core states, it's only going to work if we collectively stand up for it rather than looking around for some other poor bloke or woman to take the lead. Kevin, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm incredibly grateful to you for giving us your time. But one last question I can't resist asking. One of the things about the pandemic is we're all spending a lot more time at home and it's leading people to develop new skills, baking bread. I've finally, after four years, and I have no musical ability at all, have managed to be able to sing a song and play the guitar at the same time. Have you any kind of secret personal skills or interests that you've been able to cultivate in the last few weeks? We Australians have always struggled with walking and chewing gum at the same time. So I'm I'm deeply admiring of your uh, achievements, Matthew. For me, about a year or two ago, I may have told you this, Matthew, I embarked upon, would you believe, a DPhil program at Oxford, Jesus College and the Oxford China Centre. As I try to research... Xi Jinping's worldview. And while this is the pre-existing, if you like, skill set of mine, I've never had the time or the intellectual discipline to sit down and read the primary documents on Chinese Marxism and how they go about shaping their worldview. So what I'm using my time for, obscure though it is, is rereading all this stuff, which would normally make your eyes glaze over as I try to understand 
the intellectual machinery which contemporary Chinese Marxists use to interpret reality and their response to reality. So a nerdy answer to a question you have a much better response for in terms of turning yourself into a latter-day pop star. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bit more impressive than me learning to the three chords of amazing grace. Kevin Rod, thank you so much for your time. And I do hope that this podcast makes some contribution to the action plan that you've been calling for. Stay healthy. Thank you, Matthew. And to all Brits who are listening to the podcast, those of us in Oz who have been watching the deaths pile up in a country which is near and dear to all of our hearts here, it's just with great sadness. And so we hope that all of your folks from those septed isles can come through this um, better and stronger than before. But I, I mean it when I say all of our hearts are with you. It's just awful. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.